Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Mallory Mercer, Director of Advocacy and Community Engagement for the STAR Coalition. On this podcast series, we are going to shed light on some of the most stigmatized and misunderstood areas of the mental health industry. Our hope is that through this podcast, we can bring transparency and light to a system that is so heavily scrutinized. We aim to share vital information about a multitude of mental health topics while spreading the message that research equals hope. Molly Little has been a passionate mental health advocate for her entire life. In her role as Community Outreach Director at Neurobehavioral Clinical Research, Molly knows exactly how to meet people where they are in their journey. Whether she's bringing a pizza and making friends in her community or creating safe spaces for people to open up about their experiences, Molly is a pillar of hope and kindness. Molly also has a passion for advocating for her own community, the LGBTQ community. When Molly first started at Neurobehavioral Clinical Research, we immediately began to bond over how to help our sites and sponsors be more inclusive to her community and ensure that mental health care is accessible to all. We thought Pride Month would be the perfect time to share Molly's extensive experience and unique insights into the LGBTQ community. Hi, Molly. Welcome to the Star Coalition Pride Month podcast. How are you? Hi, Mallory. Thank you so much for having me. I am super thrilled to be here. Wonderful. Well, let's start. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Neurobehavioral Clinical Research? Yeah, so my name is Molly Little, and I am the Community Outreach Director for Neurobehavioral Clinical Research here in North Canton. We are right between Canton and Akron. We serve Stark and Summit Counties primarily, and we also have our 501c3 agency, the Ohio Center for Hope. So folks who may not qualify for clinical trials can still receive some services, but my primary job is to do community outreach and recruitment for clinical trials here in Ohio. I am also a member of the LGBT community, and Pride Month is coming up, so I'm always super excited about that. And you are always so busy with your community outreach and just doing an amazing job, so we're so thankful that you guys are a member of our coalition. But more importantly, I'm just thankful for your perspective today on this episode, and I want to honor our LGBTQ plus community, and so that's why we wanted to talk with you today. So tell me a little bit, how does NDR support and encourage you to pursue your passion for LGBTQ plus efforts? Yeah, I'm really lucky in that neurobehavioral clinical research is owned by a woman of color, Dr. Shishuka Maholtra. So her whole life is sort of based in diversity, right? A, a woman physician, a woman of color who's a physician is really interesting. So she has her finger on the pulse, as it were, for the community. As far as diversity, equity, inclusion, it's always been at the forefront of how she does business. And so doctors really kind of encouraged me, especially as clinical trials move to being trans-inclusive. They're always been LGBTQ-friendly for the most part, but being trans-inclusive and more inclusive of the larger part of our community, it's been great for our recruitment. And so Dr. Dr. Mahalter has really sort of looking to make connections with the pride communities here in our area and just to kind of promote diversity, equity, inclusion in general. And so while my niche community is the LGBT community and that's where I come from, I get the opportunity to work with populations of color, disabled communities. And so it's just been a really great opportunity to really bring folks who may not necessarily have participated in clinical trials, other types of mental health agencies in the past, not just LGBTQ. When you start working with diversity in general, it, it invites an entire population of people that we didn't have before. 
And you guys are always such a trendsetter as far as being inclusive and just going above and beyond. So we really, we appreciate you guys leading the charge there. So in preparation for our call today, I actually read an article that said that 7% of the U.S. population identifies as LGBTQ. And then I wanted to kind of put this into perspective because 7%, it doesn't sound like a lot. But in 2020, the Mm -hmm. U.S. Census reported that the Asian population in the United States is 6%. So we actually have more individuals in this country identifying as LGBTQ Mm -hmm. than Asian Americans. And so we also, I also was looking and it said that 21% of Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ, which to me seems like a fairly significant percentage of our potential future workforce as well as potential future research volunteers. So do you feel that the industry does a good job at inclusivity in the workforce? So again, I'm, I'm pretty lucky in that my agency does. Agencies that I worked for in the past have definitely, and that's something that we're seeing as gender equality, marriage equality, and some of those things have happened in American society. We're seeing that more people are more comfortable identifying. So in my humble opinion, my guess is that it's probably been closer to 20% of the population most of the time. It's just that there's been such a fear and stigma around identifying as LGBTQ that some of those early numbers, even from previous censuses, might even be a little bit askew just because a lot of folks are afraid to self-report. And so the younger generations, millennials, Gen Z, and this newest generation, Gen Alpha, my understanding is almost up to 30%. We see these younger folks who come into the industry, they bring great ideas, great passions, and they bring an entirely new set of experiences. And so a lot of the things that we might have dealt with in high school or when you know, those of us who are in our 30s through 50s are working now. Some of the situations that we had in high school and in our early adolescence aren't necessarily the case anymore. And so with that, sort of see society opening up a little bit. Agencies are trying really hard. We've seen within the last four or five years, especially since 2016 in marriage equality, we've seen definitely a shift in society to sort of include those things. And I got to say, clinical trials tend to be at the forefront of things. Dr. Maholtra always says you don't have to be edgy to work in clinical trials. Um, a lot of times being in clinical trials is edgy enough. And so I think because of the nature of our industry, because we tend to be at the forefront of things naturally, for us, incorporating the LGBT community has been a natural stepping stone. We struggled a little bit with the trans community just because a lot of times our studies right, may have been exclusionary in the past. They may not have allowed for hormone replacement therapy or certain you know, surgical procedures. And so I am happy to say that a lot of our CROs and sponsors here at Neurobehavioral are now trans-inclusive. So folks are on hormone replacement therapy. Those things are definitely being included. And so I got to be honest, I think that by the virtue of the industry, we're sort of at the forefront of the social changes too. Clinical trials has always been really inclusive of people of race. So even though there's been some historical problems and concerns within obviously in the 1900s for sure, there's been a great turnaround in the last 10 or 15 years to really be inclusive of all folks. And so I think that this industry has that advantage. Those are all such important perspectives, Molly, especially, you know, the underreporting. That's something that Mm -hmm. I didn't really think about. You know, those numbers probably are much greater. And I'm hoping that, you know, people in the next few years or they feel comfortable enough and accepted enough in their workplace and seen as more value than just their sexuality, right? You know, they are so talented and I just hope that nobody places their value in that, but looks more at the person and what they bring to the table. I was reading the Journal of Homosexuality actually released a study that stated that LGBTQ people use mental health services 2.5 times higher than heterosexual counterparts. Do you feel that individuals who identify as part of this community are aware of research as a treatment option? 
So I don't think the LGBTQ community is any more or less aware than the population at large. The LGBT community tends to be a little bit more well-resourced um, mm-hmm. just because we don't have traditional family patterns or mating patterns. So a lot of times if we have children, they're from a previous marriage, and so there's a lot of single-parent households, and there's a lot of double-income households. So the LGBT community tends to have a little bit higher resources. They tend to have a little bit higher education level. But even with those advantages, it's the same kind of stigma that the American populace has as a whole, right? That clinical trials might make you into a lab rat or you grow a tail or <laughs> all of those wonderful things that stigmas that our community and our our industry deals with. So I don't know that they're necessarily more aware, but what I will say is when the opportunity arises, I think that my community is a little bit more well-versed to take advantage of it just because of some of those things. They typically have a higher education level. They typically are more well-resourced. So even if it means getting a sitter or, you know, having two folks at home or having two cars or whatever it might be, there might be barriers to care or might be barriers to protect participating in clinical trials tend to be a little bit less in my community. But at the end of the day, I don't think they're any more well-informed. I think that stigma still exists. And much like communities of color, the LGBT community has often been discriminated against. So while there's not as much of a mistrust in the physicians of the LGBT community at large, again, the trans community and LGBT folks of color still have those concerns in general about reaching out for medical help just because there's been such a history of mistrust and violations that we're slowly overcoming as an industry at large. So I think that those folks do have a little bit of an extra hesitation when it comes to clinical trials. But I mean, as far as mental health and those things are concerned, my community tends to be a little bit more open about those things. So it's easier to talk about your feelings or bullying or suicidal ideations. What I will say about my community is while they may not be super well-versed in clinical trials. My community, the LGBT community, is very well versed in mental health. We know that the statistics are incredibly high. We know that trans teenagers are 50% more likely to attempt suicide and 20% more likely to be successful. So at the end of the day, mental health is such a large part of our community that it makes us maybe a little bit more receptive to treatment. Those statistics about suicidal ideation and success rate mm-hmm. gave me chills. That's absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. But I'm encouraged to know that your community, they do approach mental health in a different way, and they are feeling more supported in talking about that. And I think that's a very mm-hmm. important takeaway here is they may be more receptive. So we need to jump at the opportunity to bring them in and educate your community. So can mm-hmm. you tell me, we, we, you know, you touched on DE&I a little bit. Can you tell me in your own opinion, mm-hmm. Why is it so important to ensure that we're extending diversity, equity, and inclusion to LGBTQ communities? That is a great question, and I think that the reason it's important is the same reason it's important for communities of color, or we talk about addressing ableism or gender division. At some point, when we all know better, we all do better, right? And so we'll start there. And the other reason I think that it's really important is that we're a large percentage of the population, and so whoever our partners may be, our existence as human beings is still the same, right? We still have the same biology. We still have a lot of the same makeup. And so to start thinking about excluding 20 to 30 percent of the population just because of whom they love, to me, seems kind of absurd and scientifically reckless. And so uh, it's wonderful to see that the and I efforts still continue to reach out to the community because we're really starting to see change. And I know that in some times, in retrospect, uh, marriage equality that happened in 2016, people kind of said, well, you've arrived, right? We don't have equality now. Everything's good. Boys and girls and girls and boys and boys and boys. Everybody can get married. And so there was kind of this 
this pause in activism in the community of like what now, what next. And so for us, it's been the community in general, it's really been sort of focusing on trans inclusion. And so some of these things that you see where we are seeing, starting to see trans affirming care, we are starting to see CROs and sponsors recognize HRT and include that into protocols. And so these medications and these treatments are going to be used by members of the LGBT community, by people of color. And so it's important that we're included in these trials. Absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. Can you talk about the barriers that you've seen for your community participating in clinical trials other than, you know, maybe the hormone Mm -hmm. replacement therapy being exclusionary, but what other, have you seen any type of Mm -hmm. uh, maybe attitude barriers or barriers like that? Can you talk about that? Yeah, so sort of similar to the African-American community where we've had some of these misgivings or mistrust between physicians and their patients or between institutions and the populations that they serve, the LGBT communities had some of that too. So while it's not as quite as famously in medical, it usually comes to our intersex community where physicians, unfortunately, in the past have made a decision about doing operations or what procedure will happen, sometimes even in the operating room. And so a lot of times kids who are intersex or transgender or maybe had some type of genital malformation. Decisions were made for them before they were even really able to decide those things. And so there's been some trauma to the intersex community especially. And so there's some of the mistrust that comes with that. And again, you think about police brutality in the late 70s up and through the 90s through the LGBT community. And so we have some of those misgivings in general. And then you think about the HIV crisis where especially folks who are older in the community really sort of felt the backlash of that where there weren't resources available through community health and those kinds of things. So those are the kind of general mistrust that you might find in the LGBT community for the medical profession in general, not necessarily clinical trials. But what I will say is that's definitely started to ease a little bit as some of the seniors in my community see, you know, change and evolution within our own American system and society as a whole. Those things are getting better for sure. Well, I'm encouraged to hear that things are getting better. And, you know, I'm not surprised at all to hear the crossover of other historical problems that have, you know, that we've faced in other communities. And just like with other communities, Mm -hmm. we always... I don't want to use the word preach, but we always just stress the importance of language and the effect mm-hmm. that language can have on stigma associated with being mm-hmm. a member of any type of community, really. Mm-hmm. But especially when you are also someone that's living with a mental illness. So can you talk mm-hmm. about the language associated? And, and I'm even one. I'm, I learn every day by having these conversations. And I'm not a member of your community, but it's so important for us to have these conversations. So can you just shed some light on that language and how to best approach and speak on topics like this? Yeah, the language is really important. I mean, even in my lifetime, I'm 40 years old this year. The word queer, which is something I openly identify as now, even when I was a kid, that was not something that you said, right? And the communities kind of reaffirmed that word and brought that language back into the vernacular. And while other words within the trans community, that, that language is constantly evolving just even in the last five years of my career when you think about cisgender which is someone who identifies as the gender they're born as versus transgender someone who may be born one gender but identifies as something else and so learning that language can be really tricky um, we also have a lot of confusion or maybe even just like uh People are kind of disgruntled about pronouns. And those things are really, really important for two things. A, being affirmed as who you are and how you feel is really important. And I think Tyler Perry's character, Medea, famously said, it's not what they call you, it's what you answer to. So, you know, as a community, we've tried to empower certain words and, you know, destigmatize others. But I think that the most important thing that the community at large can do is just ask 
we're always afraid to say the wrong thing or did I do this wrong or whatever. If you meet someone and you're not sure of their pronouns, just ask. Be like, hey, you know, my name is Molly. My pronouns are she or they. What are your pronouns? And so if you sort of put it on yourself first and say, hey, I don't know what's the correct thing here. Can you teach me? Can you can you share with me? A lot of times that can be really, really effective with working with anybody, right? If you don't know their name, you would say, hey, I'm sorry. My name's, you know, my name's Mallory. What is your name? And so it's the same with pronouns and language and just say, hey, you know, is this okay? Are he, him pronouns okay or whatever? And honestly, people are so afraid to offend folks about their pronouns that simply just asking and being able to use whichever pronouns they request. Nobody's going to be perfect, right? I slip up all the time with friends who've transitioned in my lifetime. The important thing is to try and to be cognizant and to put that effort in. I think you are exactly right. I mean, even I find myself being so afraid to offend someone that I'm almost afraid mm-hmm. to have that conversation. And it's so much better to ask. Mm-hmm. I like I like the example that you use, like when you don't know someone's name, you know, mm-hmm. but also same thing, you know, with pronouns. It makes the conversation so much mm-hmm. more personal when you take the effort mm-hmm. and the time to care and ask. Right. So thank yeah. you so much for, for explaining that further. No problem. I want to ask you, are there any specific resources that you know of that help LGBTQ individuals navigate the mental health system or even the healthcare system as a whole? Yes. So I'm always a fan of NAMI, the National Association of Mental Illness slash Mental Health. They are fantastic. All of their chapters have done a very good job of being inclusive and they do a lot of the research. So a lot of times they're the ones that tell me what my statistics look like in my community or for women or people of color. NAMI really has their finger on the pulse. But let's put it this way, within America, I, won't, I don't know about worldwide, but definitely within the state, NAMI does a really good job of those kinds of things. The other thing that I would encourage folks to look for is in today's day and age, you can find providers who are LGBT, queer, or person of color friendly, just like you can find offices that are wheelchair accessible or may, you know, serve folks who have some type of disability. So do your homework. That can be really helpful. But I would always start with NAMI. And then most cities have like an LGBTQ center or have some type of queer resource, even if it's just like a universal church. That can be another really great place for folks to kind of get invested learn about mental health concerns, see what's available in their community, and learn about what service can cater specifically to them. That can be really, really helpful. The other resource that is pretty well known in the state is called PFLAG, Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. And so there's chapters of that, again, all over the country. So usually there's two types of groups that'll meet with that group. It'll be like those of us who are in the queer community who may be coming out or have some experience with that. And then usually those meetings happen simultaneously with family members. So, you know, if it's a teen or an and who's just coming out, then mom or dad or family can come with them and kind of get some resources too. And that way it's a great educational experience for the entire family. That's super helpful. And we'll link all of those resources Mm -hmm. in our source notes today. Mm -hmm. And we also, on our Star Coalition website, we have a few organizations that we like Mm -hmm. to link to, which um, include the Trevor Project and the Human Rights Campaign. So I'm excited to add your organizations to our webpage so that it will be easily accessible for our listeners. But that's Mm -hmm. all the time that we have for today. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in to our Pride Month podcast. Molly, Thank you so much for sharing your perspective on mental health in your own community. I know this episode is really personal to you, and I feel very fortunate that you are willing to share your story, not only with me, but with the Star Coalition community. I know that that can be really scary, and your voice means so much to people that are listening, and I I hope that you're able to give them some hope and some encouragement that they're not alone and that, you know, we are here for them. So if any of our listeners have any questions for Molly specifically or are in need of any resources, please reach out to me. My email is Mallory at the star with two r's dot org.
Thanks for having me, Mallory. Yeah, it was absolutely wonderful to be here. For those in my community, I, I, I'm not just working in clinical trials. I live with mental health every day. And so we, we have a saying in our community that says it gets better, but it also gets better because we work for it. So just be willing to invest in yourself. Ask questions. My email address is mlittle at nb-dr.com. Feel free to shoot me an email at any point. If you have questions about your sexuality, transitioning, or mental health, I'm always happy to help. Thank you, Molly. You're welcome.